Welcome back to the Living Richer Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shimkowitz, and you're listening to episode number eight. For those listeners who are new to the podcast, you may not be aware of what the focus of our practice is here at Living Richer Wealth Management. The bottom line for us is about helping clients to achieve their life goals and to successfully navigate through all of life's transitions. Some of those goals are planned, like buying a home or selling a business or certainly retiring. These are major life transitions that, of course, have financial implications. Other transitions are unplanned, like divorce. And as a certified divorce financial analyst and having worked with clients who have gone through it, I understand that not only is this a time where a lot of financial decisions need to be made, but there are also a lot of things that you should be aware of that you may not even be thinking about. It's, there's an old saying that you don't know what you don't know. So today, I wanted to shed some light on them. And just as we try to prepare for any life transition, preparing for divorce means understanding some of the things that you should do before the process begins. And to do that, I have an interview today for you with Rosanna Brightman. Now, Rosanna is a divorce mediator who's recently written an ebook entitled The Seven Crucial Steps to Take Before Saying, I Want a Divorce. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to tell you how you can access a free copy of her ebook that she's made available to all of our listeners. So, without any further ado, cue the music. Welcome to Living Richer with Mark Shimkovitz, Vice President at Raymond James Private Client Group, one of Canada's largest independent investment firms. In this podcast, he'll share with you the things you need to know and things you need to do to build a smart financial plan. Follow along with Mark and learn how to invest wisely, avoid financial mistakes, and navigate life's curveballs without fear. Now, let's get started. So welcome back to Living Richer. Today we have with us Rosanna Brightman. Uh, Rosanna is a family law lawyer here in Toronto. And um, Rosanna, why don't we just start off, perhaps you can give us a little bit of a background on who you are, um, about your firm, the type of people you serve, uh, that sort of thing. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yes, I am a family law lawyer by profession. My practice is currently restricted to family mediation which means that I've chosen to work with clients who want to participate in the mediation process as opposed to a traditional legal process that often entails being adversarial and going to court. So in mediation, uh, the people come and work with me together. Sometimes they have their own lawyers, sometimes they don't. Sometimes if they do have lawyers, their lawyers are marginal participants. Sometimes they are full participants. Whatever the configuration is, they're there to have a civilized, respectful conversation and negotiate their own resolution to the legal issues such as parenting, child support, spousal support, what to do with their matrimonial home, how to divide up their property, all those legal issues that people might also in another parallel universe be fighting about in court if they were to go that route. Right. Um, and, and one of the things that you mentioned to me earlier on uh, about your practice, and, and it's a little bit different, is that you take this holistic approach. Is that what you're describing right now? Or does it go beyond that? Well, yes, it is holistic in the sense that I really do challenge people to uh, give a lot of thought to the kind of co-parenting relationship they want to have following their separation and divorce. So not everyone who comes to me has kids, but the majority do. And whether they're little kids or school age or teenagers or even adult children, 
the decisions that they make in terms of how they treat each other within this process have long-term implications for uh, the relationship that they'll have with their kids and how their kids will view them and perceive them and whether their kids will thank them for doing their utmost to make the process as smooth as possible for them or whether their kids will turn around one day and point fingers and blame their parents for ruining their childhood and being selfish and, and not noticing the, this horrible impact that a, a more adversarial process was having on the kids. So that is definitely a big part of the holistic process to really take a step back and think about how this affects the kids who I always think are the most important participants in the process, even though they aren't physically there. Right. And, and even if there aren't kids, a holistic process leaves both parties when all is said and done, I would imagine in you know, a, a happier, a, 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 I guess, a, a state of better well-being. That Does that make sense? That's true. It's all about fairness and respect as far as I'm concerned. And, um, you know, people are angry. People are resentful, hurt, hostile, a uh, whole range of emotions that are less than positive. Uh, but I think you can, you can hold those feelings uh, towards your spouse at the same time as you can choose to be fair, respectful, you know, work together to craft a settlement that enables both parties to sleep at night where nobody feels as though they've won or lost. And, and if you do feel that you've won, if you've won at the other person's expense, um, you know, ultimately, I do believe in karma. And I do believe that if you, if you treat people unfairly, that does come back to haunt you. Ultimately, it's always better to take the high road, be fair, be respectful, uh, aim to to arrive at a settlement that balances both sides' interests as fairly as possible. Well, and I guess that's ultimately the objective for everybody. But what we want to talk about today is an ebook that you wrote. It's called "The Seven Crucial Steps to Take Before Saying I Want a Divorce," and and I really like this approach because um, it's very different, and it and it really does take you ultimately to, you know, that long-term goal that we just talked about. Uh, but these are all the things that you want to do before even bringing up the concept of divorce. And uh, I'd like to first take a look at that first step. And in that first step, I, I kind of found that interesting because you said that uh, everyone wants to keep themselves safe and, and you want, and you talk about safety, but isn't that the objective of everybody before having the talk? So why is it that you say, you know, keeping yourself safe? Sure. Well, that's obviously more of a concern in some situations than in others. Um, so before a person approaches their spouse and says the words, I want a divorce, I think it's really important to give some thought to how that person is likely to respond. And your predictions about how that person is likely to respond are going to be informed by how that person has behaved in the past. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is in an abusive relationship, either emotionally abusive or physically abusive or both, um, an abuse, a relationship that is um, controlling, one in which uh, somebody feels that there's an inequality of bargaining power, that their spouse has all the power and they feel they have very little power. Maybe their spouse controls all the money. You know, some of these things in isolation aren't enough to make a person necessarily feel unsafe because some of those things like an imbalance in power can be controlled for and corrected within a mediation process. But something like physical violence, you know, if somebody's spouse has hit them, has pushed them, has shoved them, if they're actually afraid that they could be physically attacked, 
um, as a result of making this announcement that they want a divorce, then it is best not to have that talk with them directly and to explore other avenues for initiating a separation. You know, for example, having a lawyer be the one to approach the spouse. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, making sure that the parties are in separate spaces before that topic is broached. So, you know, people who are afraid for their safety, whose spouses have historically been physically violent or threatening, you know, they've threatened to kill them if they ever ended the marriage or something like that. Those people are not good candidates for mediation in general. Right. And well, shouldn't be having to talk alone. Definitely. Um, and, and, and I mean, I don't mean to laugh because that is a very, very serious situation, but thankfully it's just a yeah. small percentage um, of, yeah. of the people who are going through divorce. I think, I think you're laughing not out of uh, finding it funny, but because it's so obvious that those people should not be having a talk with their spouse. It's so right. obvious or it seems so obvious. Um, but people should give some thought to that because sometimes it isn't obvious enough. And sadly, those situations uh, you know, often do not end well. So the, the second step that you talk about, you talk about connecting with a therapist. Uh, so, I mean, let, let, let's assume that, you know, everything's going fine and, and I'm of the mindset that, you know, I'm a strong person. I don't need a therapist. I can get through this without any help. Why mm -hmm. do you suggest um, that people really should consider seeking out uh, a therapist? Well, separation and divorce is one of the hardest things anybody can go through. And there are some studies out there that suggest that going through a separation or divorce is even more stressful than dealing with the death of a spouse. And I suppose that's because if a spouse dies, they didn't choose to leave you. But if you're going through a divorce, then you know, either you or your spouse has made that choice. And often it's been a very difficult choice, you know, following many unsuccessful efforts to try to make things right. So it is like going through a death. It's the death of a marriage. It's the death of hopes and dreams and you know, what, what you thought would happen. Uh, your plans all go up in smoke. There's a lot of stress around, you know, worry that you might not have your kids with you all the time or that you're not going to have as much money. In fact, we'll talk about that later. Everyone mm -hmm. who goes through separation or divorce does have to adjust to a reduction in their available assets and income. But, you know, it's scary to think about. So divorce is a grief process. And when people are going through grief, they have a fundamental need for support from others. You know, we are social animals and we can't go through, th through things alone. Um, so people have this innate need to seek out support. So getting support from a therapist is a constructive thing to do. Getting support from a judge or a mediator or you know, other actors within the legal system is not necessarily uh, the best strategy because I think often what people are looking for when they're seeking support from those sources, they're never gonna find there. They're looking for vindication. They're looking for someone to tell them, yes, you were right and your spouse was wrong. Yes, the, the breakdown of the marriage was that person's fault and not your fault. Yes, you were the good guy and they were the bad guy. You know, this is part of what people are looking for when they um, embark on these long drawn out court battles. They want vindication from the judge. They wanna be told their rights. So they can point the, their finger at their spouse and say, see, you were wrong, it's all your fault. Um, it's, it's dangerous because it eats you up emotionally. It costs a lot of money. Um, the kids know that that's going on. If you have kids, mm -hmm. um, the community knows that that's going on. You know, people that go around bad mouthing their spouses uh, in court also often do that within their community. And really most people, when they look back, um, don't regret being discreet. And most people do regret 
having everyone know their business and having everyone gossip about your family is probably not ideal, especially for the kids. You know, the kids suffer when they hear other kids in the schoolyard or other moms in the schoolyard or dads in the schoolyard uh, talking about their family is painful. So if you don't get proper support from a therapist, you're going to try to seek it out from inappropriate channels. And also, you know, if you're dealing with everything all by yourself, you're, you're going to implode at some point, you know, and this is what gives rise to uh, increased alcohol abuse, increased depression, increased drug use, um, you know, increased feelings of guilt that can really eat people up inside. So if you have someone to talk to, it's a lot less likely that you'll find yourself unable to manage those difficult feelings. Well, you really answered the next question I was going to have, and that, that is, what are some of the dangers? Uh, and it really sounds like there's quite a few. Um, I, I mean, if going back to where we started, you know, your ultimate objective is to come out of the process in a help, you know, uh, a healthier, happier uh, way, not understanding the benefits of a therapist uh, could really take you in the wrong direction. So, so that's, uh, that, that's probably something that not a lot of people think about and certainly a lot of valid right. points why they should. And I do recommend it to pretty much all of my clients. And I find it amazing how resistant some people can be to that idea and why they're resistant. And, and the reasons often have to do with feelings of shame, feelings of guilt, feelings that it shows weakness to speak to a therapist, that if they speak to a therapist, it means there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. um, but that's always very surprising to me because everyone I know who has sought that kind of support is so grateful that they have and they uh, really do begin to lean on that person as such an essential source of support. Wow. Um, the, the next point, um, and, and I think we talked a little bit about some of this in your book, is um, I guess understanding the different legal avenues that people can take, because I, I know most people automatically think, well, you know, this is going to be a contentious divorce, or even if it's not, well, I've got to get a lawyer, I've got to get somebody who's strong, because, you know, ultimately, this is going to go to court. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, now, you're, you, you focus on mediation. So let's just talk a little bit about that. And maybe, um, I don't know, I understand how mediation works, but I think there's a lot of myths surrounding mediation and, and, and perhaps you can deconstruct uh, what some of those myths are. I'm happy to do that. And I just even want to reverse a bit and say that a lot of people still don't understand what mediation is. Even members of my own family, not my nuclear family, but extended family, and even some friends who I thought should understand it because I talk about it enough, but a lot of right. people think mediation is kind of like marriage counseling. So uh -huh. if you go to a mediator, maybe you're not sure you want to separate or divorce. Maybe you're going to the mediator to try to put your marriage back together. That is not the case. Okay. Uh, mediation is a conflict resolution uh, process. And it is one in which both parties, as I said before, come to the table together or to the computer in these days of Zoom mediations um, with this joint goal of negotiating their own way to a final separation agreement covering all of the issues that lawyers would normally fight about. So it, it can be a great process uh, for those for whom it's appropriate. And again, if there are safety concerns, it may not be appropriate if uh, these people cannot be in the same space without fighting and snapping each other every second that they're together, uh, it may not be uh, 
successful because it's really hard to make any progress when people are screaming at each other and talking over each other and, and seem to want to use the process more as a, as a venue in which to air their grievances than one in which to resolve their issues. So it's not for everyone, but it is for people who share certain goals. Uh, number one, they want an efficient process. You know, they're not interested in spending months or years of their lives paying lawyers ten, tens of thousands of dollars and working their way through a very convoluted, confusing, slow court system. Um, so they want to save time, they want to save money, because in mediation, uh, even though the hourly rate is not inexpensive, it's divided in half. So instead of each person paying their own lawyer hundreds of dollars an hour, mm -hmm. each is paying half of a fee, which is right. hundreds of dollars an hour. Right. Um, but, you know, it's not just the hourly rate that's important. It's the number of hours spent and the mediation process has a lot of efficiencies built into it to reduce the overall cost. So people that appreciate value, cost savings, efficiency, people who um, are interested in some of those goals that we spoke about before, putting the kids first, being their best selves, being the best co-parents that they can possibly be, people that want to learn best practices and strategies for how to succeed in those goals. Um, people who are prepared to make full financial disclosure, that's really key. If mm -hmm. somebody is not willing to make full financial disclosure within the mediation process, it's not going to be successful because I will not be a party to people uh, negotiating a resolution that is not based on full financial disclosure. So unfortunately, there have been some people I've had to um, kick out of the mediation process. Of course, I do it nicely, but I, I, I can't work with people who refuse to provide account statements, for example, proving the values of their assets or liabilities on the date of separation. I can't work with people who say, oh, just take my word for what my income is. No, we need to see the income tax returns. If we don't have the financial disclosure, it's a pointless process because at the end of the process, I do strongly encourage people to take my draft agreement to lawyers for independent legal advice if they haven't already worked with a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And if a lawyer looks at a draft separation agreement and says, well, how'd you come up with these numbers? Where's the disclosure? Where are the tax returns? Where are the uh, corporate tax returns if they have their own business, the business financial statements? Uh, you know, all of that needs to be produced up front. And you can't very well say, well, he or she told me so. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to do the best job I can for my clients. And I also have my own credibility and reputation to protect. Right. Are all mediators lawyers as well? Or is that a requirement? No, it's not a requirement. Actually, there are a lot of mediators out there who are not lawyers, but I strongly recommend that if there are financial issues involved, um, people think very carefully about what kind of professional they want to use because there is a lot of law involved. I don't give legal advice, but I give legal information, legal framework. So if somebody's taking a legal position that I think is untenable, mm -hmm. Um, I will draw their attention to what I think the lawyers are likely to say. That's not the same as giving legal advice to either party. It's saying in front of both of them, look, if you go to a lawyer, this is what your lawyer is going to say. I don't think your lawyer is going to want to let you sign this. So maybe we need to reconsider. A common example of that is if somebody comes in and says, oh, my spouse and I agree there's not going to be any child support payable. Well, I'll, I'll tell them you can agree to that. But I just want to let you know that any agreement that purports to waive child support is unenforceable or any agreement that purports to uh, waive the yearly income disclosure process is unenforceable. So you can agree to it. It's not worth the paper it's written on. So right. there's really no point. And, you know, I'll explain child support and, you know, what, what the intent of the legislation is and that somebody asking for child support is not the same as that person being 
quote unquote greedy or trying to um, you know, go after the other person. These are some of the phrases I hear people say, oh, you know, she's gonna be greedy and go after me for child support. Well, it's not about being greedy or going after anybody. She's really not the one getting the support. It's the child getting the support. Right. That's how we have to look at things. Each parent has an obligation to support their child, uh, irrespective of what the other parent thinks. So I even had a case once where the, the, the wife would have been the child support recipient and she steadfastly refused to accept it. And I said to the husband privately, which is not the same as, yeah, in principle, because she hated him. And I took him aside and I said, I'm not giving you legal advice, but you know, you should speak to your lawyer about this. And what your lawyer is going to say, I think, is that irrespective of the fact that she says she refuses to accept it, you have an obligation to pay it and she could come back after you in the future. There, I just used those words. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so what I suggest is you take the amount of money that you'd be legally obligated to pay every month and put it into an account somewhere that you're going to tell yourself you will not touch and let it keep accumulating. Mm -hmm. And you know, once your children are uh, over the age of majority, then you can think about uh, you know, whether you want to give it directly to that child, because the child could also come back and claim support independently of really? the other parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what happened a year and a half after I gave him that suggestion, he called me up and he says, guess what? He came after me. <laughs> she it wants happened. the whole thing. So I was like, I'm so glad I thought of that. Great advice. Yeah. Um, Another area that you, you, you talk about, and I think that for people who've heard the word collaborative family law, uh, there might be some confusion because I guess the word sort of sounds similar. So how does mediation um, differ or how is it similar to collaborate the collaborative approach? Yes, I will answer that. I just want to circle back because oh, I realized right. I didn't 100% answer your question. Can people go to mediators who aren't lawyers? Right. And there are a lot of amazing mediators that do fantastic work on parenting plans, for example, who are social workers or psychologists or um, other sorts of child-centered professionals. And so I, I just don't want my previous response to be interpreted um, as though I had said, no, don't ever go to a non-lawyer mediator for anything right. ever, because there are some non-lawyers that can do an effective job. It's just that everyone has to stay in, in their lane and right. uh, know their own limitations. And unfortunately, not everyone does that because mediation is somewhat of an unregulated profession. Um, so one would think that all professionals would uh, ethically know when to stay in their lane and choose to do that. But unfortunately, not everyone does. So I would just say, uh, if you're looking for a mediator, vet the person carefully, try to go with a personal recommendation from somebody who's used one instead of just Googling somebody. Mm -hmm. um, so, so then before we then go on to the collaborative question, then that actually made me think of something else. So if you are dealing with you know, a highly respected individual who's a mediator, but not a lawyer, um, and you've gotten some great advice, does it make sense to take those recommendations after the fact and go and seek your own legal representation just to make sure that the settlement that you've agreed upon is legal in every way? And, and you know, as you mentioned, that a judge might look at something and say, well, no, that doesn't. So does, does that make sense? I think independent legal advice is always crucial. I strongly recommend it to each of my clients. Some choose not to go to lawyers though. Um, and in those cases, I will paper the agreement very, very carefully and make it clear that they have been advised to, they understand the risks, 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is extremely important in every case, but that much more important when the mediator isn't a lawyer. Again, the idea of people using a mediator who isn't a lawyer for financial issues um, really scares me, particularly if there's any complexity to the financial issues, because there are some financial issues that are so complex um, that even lawyers need to get external help. For example, you know, if somebody has uh, their own business, if somebody uh, is a shareholder in a corporation, and just valuing their business interests, valuing the uh, shares, if people have complicated compensation structures, you know, a lot of people have stock options or restricted uh, stock units or deferred profit sharing plans. And, you know, for, for even a lawyer to try to quantify the value of some of those um, remuneration packages, or to try to value a business or determine uh, you know, some of these other complex valuation issues, you know, even a lawyer or a mediator who's a lawyer should be outsourcing some of that work to an accountant, um, a, a certified divorce financial analyst, a business valuator, an appraiser. There's so many other professionals that often should be weighing in on some of these issues. So again, it's very dangerous for people to um, uh, dabble in practice areas that are, are are not within their wheelhouse. I mean, I would not attempt a mediation, for example, on uh, a child protection issue because that's outside my area of practice. I don't get involved with cases involving children's aid, and mm -hmm. there are lots of mediators who do. So I would say, you know what? I wish I could help you. That's not really my area of practice. Let me refer to somebody who specializes in that. So that, that's great advice for someone to realize that, you know, if my situation is such that I'm using terms like remuneration packages and deferred stock options and things like that, that that's really now getting to the point where you really do want to have someone who's got specialized expertise in that area. So now, even simple things, e sorry, even simple yeah. things, though, I just want to be clear, like RRSPs, um, some people who are not experienced may not even realize that you have to take off disposition costs, so you're not valued the gross, uh, you know, uh, amount that appears in your account statement, you have to account for whatever tax is ultimately going to be taken off and you have to uh, guesstimate the appropriate tax rate. So pension, same thing. So a lot of assets have tax implications attached to them. Uh, you know, a second property will have a capital gains tax consequence attached to its disposition. So even things that might seem simple, oh, you know, we've got an appraisal, we know how much our cottage is worth. Yeah, but did you think about the capital gains tax as a potential liability? So, you know, it doesn't There's, have to be that complex even. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I know that in our, in our practice, we've definitely seen situations where uh, one, one spouse might have $100,000 in an RSP, for example example, another one might have $100,000 in a savings account and say, okay, well, that's fair, that's equal. Or as you point out, you know, a cottage that could be worth $100,000, but they paid uh, 10,000, although I don't think that Oh, exists. where can I buy one of those? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but the, the capital gains tax. So there are um, things yeah. that need to be looked at with every asset and, and uh, in terms of making sure that it's fair. Now, yes. let's get now. on to collaborative okay. law, because that is something that's different. Yes, it is. And you're right, there is a lot of overlap between collaborative family law and mediation, you know, in terms of the philosophy behind them. Mm -hmm. So they're both what we call interest based processes, as opposed to a rights based process, so a rights based process is a process where somebody is a decision maker, and you just sort of hand everything over to that person and say, here are the facts, here's my argument, here's their argument, here's the evidence, now decide what's fair. So that happens obviously in court, and it ha happens in arbitration, um, which is similar to court. It's a process where you hire somebody privately to essentially perform the same function that a judge would perform. 
So those are rights-based process, so-called because the person making the decision makes that decision based on the letter of the law. You know, what are these people's legal rights? Mediation and collaborative family law are interest-based processes, meaning that we bargain in the shadow of the law. So it's not as though we don't care what the law says or we're oblivious to that. We still wanna remain somewhere within a reasonable legal framework, um, but there's a lot more room for creativity and self-determination, meaning that people can decide for themselves what they think is fair. So one example, in a rights-based process, um, if, if people don't know what to do about their matrimonial home, the judge will order the home sold. You know, there's no fair way to resolve that kind of disagreement other than to say oh. the house is sold and the proceeds are split up according to the formula prescribed by the judge. In mediation or collaborative family law, you know, any interest-based process, you will get more into the why uh, of, of this dispute. Why are they arguing about that? You know, each person says they want to buy the other person out. Why is it so important to each of them? You know, what are you really getting at here? And maybe you find out one person's reasons for wanting to buy the other person out are a bit more wishy-washy or they're not that uh, rigid in their desire to do that. Their main concern is not getting a fair price. Then the conversation becomes more about, well, what can we do to, to further explore this idea of a buyout? You know, if one person wants the house so much more than the other and the other person is just concerned about a fair price, can we create a process to, to give this person some satisfaction that they feel the price is fair, which might then in turn make them more inclined to consider a buyout. Same thing with parenting. You know, in court, people fight about who's going to have custody, who is the child gonna live with? In collaborative family law, as with mediation, the focus is not so much on the party's positions, like I want custody. No, I want custody. Well, uh, I'm gonna die before agreeing that you have custody. Um, or I want 50-50, I don't agree with you having 50-50. You know, the focus in court tends to be, or arbitration tends to be who's a better parent, who's better equipped to parent the kids. And they said about proving how involved they've been. You know, you get these large affidavits talking about the time each person has put in with these kids from the time they were born to the time that the case is before the judge. How many hours does each person spend each day breaking it down? Who's helping the kids brush their teeth? Who's doing what homework? Very positional, very adversarial, very much focused on proving who's right. In collaborative family law or mediation an interest-based process, the focus is more on, you know, why is it that you're saying you want sole custody? And often you'll hear maybe somebody who hasn't been that involved before will admit that they're afraid that if they don't go for 50-50 shared parenting, the other spouse is going to try to take the kids away from them because maybe they grew up, um, you know, children of divorce and they saw one of their parents trying to take them away from the other parent. You know, people are very fearful mm -hmm. and a lot of this boils down to fear. You know, a lot of the positions people take, a lot of the ways people behave boils down to fear. And if I don't fight, I'm not going to get what I want. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose my money. I'm going to be taken advantage of by the other person and so on and so forth. So like mediation, collaborative family law really tries to get at what's really going on under the surface with these positions people are taking. What do they really want? What do they really need? What are they really afraid of? And is there some other way to address what people really want? Not, not, not necessarily the position that they've come in advocating for, but something else that might meet their needs. So the difference between collaborative family law and mediation is that instead of um, having an impartial third party guiding the negotiations, um, as I said, with or without lawyers present, that's what the mediator does. Mm -hmm. In collaborative family law, each person has their own lawyer from the beginning of the case to the end of the case. So there's two, of, two lawyers involved right from the outside. Two lawyers, yeah, but it's a, a series of meetings, much more you know, interest-based, informal, much friendlier. You know, each lawyer is trying to think about their uh, 
their clients' spouses' interests as well as their own clients, the way a litigation lawyer would do. Uh, sorry, I mean, as opposed to the way a traditional litigation lawyer would focus only on their own clients' interests, the collaborative lawyer focuses on both parties' interests while still advocating for their client. Um, so the difference between uh, retaining a collaborative lawyer and retaining a traditional lawyer, aside from the nature of the process itself, is that at the beginning of the collaborative family law process, you have to sign a contract uh, saying that if the process breaks down and you do choose to go to court, you have to fire your lawyer and so does the other person and both of you have to start fresh with new lawyers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, well, it's no. meant to be a deterrent so nobody stands up and says, well, I don't like the way this is going. That's it. I'm going to court. Right. Wow. Okay. And, and now um, a, a lot of the meetings, obviously the meetings when um, people are getting together with their mediator, it, it's the three of them. Now, when they're having going through the collaborative law process, um, do you have the two lawyers and uh, the, the two spouses all together in a room or, or does it sort of go back and forth the way it does with traditional uh, lawyers? It is generally a series of meetings with all four parties present um, okay. in the same room and then breaking out into separate rooms, which is sometimes how mediation happens too. Mm -hmm. um, so in either process, there's gonna be time spent together and time spent separately, uh, going back and forth, trying to, you know, um, in the case of mediator, talking to each person separately when it's appropriate to do so. And in the case of collaborative family law, each lawyer talking to their client separately right. and then reconvening, you know, because sometimes what somebody says in the room with the other person present is not what they're going to say when they're in their own private space, right. you know, in, in terms of maybe revealing that there's more room for negotiation or flexibility than what they're letting on. Um, so the mediator or the collaborative lawyer has to always walk that line between keeping those those pieces of information as confidential as possible and also maybe kind of hinting to the other person that there might be a bit of room for negotiation. It's a bit of a, a delicate dance. The next point in your book, I find kind of interesting because, you know, we've talked so much about legal issues and things that someone would certainly learn as they're going through. But you say that people should, you know, understand their legal rights before even having the talk. So why is that? And, and what sort of legal rights do they need to know before even having the talk? Right. I think they just need to have a general overview of what the legal issues are going to be, what the areas of discussion will be. I mean, people call me and say, I want to separate or I feel that I need to separate or my spouse has said they want a separation. I have no clue what comes next. I have no clue what we need to talk about, you know, what the issues are going to be. I hear that all the time. I have no clue. I'm quoting directly from dozens of people who right. said those words. And, you know, so it really is important to, to at least have a general sense of the lay of the land. You know, you wouldn't get into your car and attempt to drive from Toronto to Florida without first looking at a map and, and knowing in general, you're going to be driving south, you're going to have to cross the border, you're going to have to have your passport ready, you're going to have to probably book at least one or two hotel room stays. Um, you know, they're, they're just basic things that you need to know in order to just get your head around the fact that you have to get from point A to point B, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and reading up a little bit is very, very easy to do. Of course, you have to make sure you're reading the right sources because there are a lot of people putting information on the internet, but, you know, in Ontario and the link is in the ebook, the uh, ministry of the attorney general has put together an excellent website, just giving a general overview of what the legal issues typically are on separation or divorce, you know, parenting, child support, spousal support, 
property division, what legislation applies, uh, what are the typical steps that have to be taken, what are the different processes you can use. Um, and it's very user friendly, you know, it's, it's not mm -hmm. esoteric, it's not academic, it's meant to be accessible to anybody going through this. So even just reading that document and having a general sense of what the law generally is, you know, what, what the issues will be, what my rights might be, how decisions are typically made. Um, you know, then it's kind of like going to see a movie after you've already read the book, you know, the movie being the mediation process or the legal right. process, you know, you've read the book, so you know what to expect. It's not all new and surprising. And, you know, when something is new and surprising and you're seeing it for the first time or hearing it for the first time, it's a lot harder to take in and retain. You know, if you've already read the book before seeing the movie, the movie's going to be a lot more memorable. You already know the plot, so you're going to retain it a lot better the second time. Great analogy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm definitely going to make sure you said that there's a link in the ebook and I'll, I'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, so the, the next point, uh, and, and I know we've been going on a little long, uh, is the financial side. And, and certainly that's, a, you know, an area as a certified divorce financial analyst and as a financial advisor that we work a lot on. And one of the things that I am abundantly aware of is that once we start to talk about finances, people well, they get overwhelmed and their eyes start to glaze over and people start to get bogged down. So what do you say um, are some of the things that people need to know about before starting the process? You know, do they need to know everything about the full financial picture or uh, what, are, what are some of the key elements? No, they don't. And I've learned through experience that if I start the process out by sending them an email saying, here's all the information you should have ready before the first meeting, I will sometimes not see them again right. because it is that overwhelming. It's just too much. And they're overwhelmed and they're just not in the headspace sometimes to even think about that. You know, people have more immediate concerns like, am I going to lose my kids or are my kids going to be okay? Or how do we break it to the kids that we're separating? Or, you know, what are my parents going to think? They're going to be so upset at me for, for separating. So the concerns that people have, um, you know, there's this vague worry or anxiety about, am I going to be okay financially? But often that's as far as it goes. And they don't have the bandwidth sometimes to, to get into that nitty gritty. So yeah, you're right, Mark. It's very important to let them know at the beginning that this information will be required eventually, mm -hmm. but there's absolutely no pressure to come up with it at the outset. And in fact, we can have some really helpful constructive discussions that can move things forward a lot without first gathering that information. So that can come later along mm -hmm. uh, in the process. And there are great people like certif certified divorce financial analysts and financial advisors, people like yourself and other colleagues I know um, that can really walk people through that financial disclosure process, accumulating all the documents they need and all the information they need. And some people really do benefit from having someone like that on their side to kind of hold their hand through the process. I even know a few people like that, uh, probably not you, but a couple of people I've worked with who will go to the client's home and, and actually physically go through all of their files with them in their home. And these people sometimes are very disorganized and it can take 30 or 40 hours of going through somebody's very disorganized file boxes in their office to help them pull this stuff together. So there are supports out there and I always wanna let people know that. Um, so what information will they eventually need? Mm -hmm. Uh, the last three years income tax returns, generally speaking, um, if a person is self-employed, has their own business, 
um, or professional practice, then we're going to need to do a business valuation, which will entail bringing in another neutral professional. And I have one who I often work in partnership with. Um, and um, so she will take in all this information, including corporate tax returns, business financial statements. Uh, often she'll speak to uh, the shareholder's accountant and uh, um, elicit more documents that are necessary in order for her to come to a determination and sort of non-binding determination, but an opinion of what their income should be for support purposes. So any income information that's relevant to that. Um, and then on the asset and liability side, we need, first of all, to establish a date of separation. So sometimes that's not even possible until the mediation starts, in which case they can't even start compiling it. But once they know the date of separation, which can be a point of contention, uh, once that's been agreed upon, then as of that date of separation, uh, a list of all of the assets and liabilities in either party's name or in joint names. And if assets or liabilities are held in joint names, we'll need to keep going with that and keep updating the values because it's, it's the date of disposition um, value that's relevant, not the valuation date value that's relevant. But for anything in one person's name or the other, like a solely held RRSP mm -hmm. or uh, somebody's share in a business or anything like that, it's the date of separation value that's relevant. Okay. Uh, so it's not just assets, but also liabilities, credit cards, lines of credit, mortgage, uh, disposition costs anticipated um, in the future if you cash in an RSP or a pension or uh, there's a capital gain on a property, as we discussed before. Um, so any assets or liabilities that you know of on the valuation date, and there's all kinds of subcategories, um, and also any assets or liabilities people brought in to the marriage. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify, we're talking about legally married people here. This exercise does not apply to common law spouses. Interesting. Um, and that's, that's a very common myth, actually, that once you've lived with somebody for a few years, you're automatically legally married. That's not true. It is a very common and pervasive myth. And people say it to me all the time and argue with me because they think I'm wrong. And they look it up and I go, okay. no, actually, you're right. Well, I'm not <laughs> Yeah, surprise, surprise, after 23 years doing the same job, I'm right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and the Supreme Court has ruled on this and you know it, it's, it's very well established. So common law people uh, do not ever automatically acquire the same rights to a, a division of assets, which is called an equalization uh, that married people do. Common law people have their own property division rules. So mm -hmm. people are common law, a lot of the same information is required, but we're not looking to do uh, the same sort of division. It's going to be a different kind of division. So assets and liabilities on the date of marriage, mm -hmm. um, which can also sometimes be challenging to find because most financial institutions only keep the records for seven years. Right. Uh, so sometimes that's a challenging exercise. And then any uh, gifts or inheritances from third parties have to be accounted for and those receive special treatment. So if, if someone were to receive an inheritance, for example, and they you know, kept that in their own bank account, or they kept that in their own name. Um, and, and I know maybe we're going a little bit off topic, but uh, is that treated differently than say, if I were to inherit something, and I put that inheritance into a joint account? Absolutely. Yes. If it's kept segregated, then it's much you know, it's likely going to be excluded property under the Family Law Act, meaning that you likely do not have to share that with your spouse in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, and I say likely because there are always exceptions and strange circumstances. So, you know, maybe the property would be excluded, but maybe the other spouse um, helped 
contribute to that account. You know, for example, if it's an investment property piece of real mm-hmm. estate, maybe it was refinanced and the other spouse was paying part of the mortgage. So now they're going to say they have what we call an equitable interest in that. Now we're getting off on a, a real tangent. Yes. These are unusual circumstances, but I'm just saying I always qualify whatever I say because there are always exceptional circumstances. But, you know, generally speaking, if you receive an inheritance and put it away in your own account in your own name, it's going to be safe. Um, if you receive an inheritance and put it into a joint account, then not so much. If you receive an inheritance and use it to pay down your mortgage or to buy a cottage that you use together with your spouse, uh, you're likely going to lose any uh, right that you might have otherwise had to exclude that. So um, it's it's uh, very important that people uh, are careful proactively about how they share money with their adult children, actually. That's another whole conversation. Mm-hmm. I could see why we say that, you know, the financial side of things can get very complex, but it's also good to know that when you're working with, you know, the professionals, they're going to be able to help you understand, you know, all of the information that's required. And, and it's going to be like baby steps. You're, you're going to deal with it in little uh, bite-sized chunks, because I know that there is a, a legal form, it's called a form 13.1 that people are required to complete. And if anybody goes on, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a link to that as well, uh, and takes a look at that, you could see that <laughs> it's like, oh my God, that's it's like, just close that screen very yeah, quickly. That's it the is one that strikes terror into their hearts. Absolutely. It's, yeah. uh, it's very overwhelming for people to open up that document and take a look at it. And, you know, that, that's why I say I learned not to ask people to do too much in advance of the first meeting, because as you say, their eyes glaze over, they freeze up, they become totally overwhelmed. And they're like, wow, maybe, maybe I should just stick with this person. I can't stand <laughs> I just for can't. 20 years just to avoid doing that form. <laughs> Um, yeah, so definitely. Now, and, and then the next point's kind of tied in with the last one, and, and that's uh, talking about budgeting. And, you know, we know that budgeting is important. We, we talk to clients about that all the time. And, uh, but the reality of it is that not everyone does it. And, and why do you say that, um, you know, understanding, you know, uh, budgeting, your, your big picture, and some of the, I guess, transitional costs and, and costs of financial advice, and, and all of these things are important to understand before saying, I want a divorce, before having that talk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, budgeting is a very challenging thing to do. And I will admit, I'm not the greatest at it myself. But if I were going through a separation or a divorce, I would certainly make an effort to be better. And the reason is that everyone except for the independently wealthy will suffer a significant reduction in their financial means following separation or divorce. So you'll have half the assets, you'll have half the income, Um, it's going to be a lot more stressful. And let's face it, living in the city of Toronto or the GTA, even people that are earning several hundred thousand dollars a year often find it challenging to meet their expenses. Now their expenses may be more elaborate to to other people, but uh, those are the costs of living in Toronto sometimes. And so I have, you know, couples who are separating who have a family income of three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars, you know, which sounds like a very, very healthy income. Mm -hmm. And it is healthy enough if you're living in one house, but often these people are even at that income level spending every penny they bring in because a lot goes to taxes, a lot goes to housing, transportation, you know, the cost of food, everything's more expensive in Toronto, the cost of the kids activities. Um, So, you know, to imagine feeling sometimes stretched on that income, and now having to split that between two households, Um, you know, and people that live in a two and a half million dollar home, which, you know, is maybe around the average cost of a detached home in certain neighborhoods in Toronto, 
you know, but they have a million dollar mortgage on that $2.5 million home. You know, now after they sell the house, if that's their main asset, which it sometimes is, then you know, that $1.5 million in equity, which is going to be even less after commissions, maybe 1.3 mm-hmm. and a half, you know, that that's going to have to go to two down payments. They're going to wind up in condos as opposed to a comfortable house in, in the neighborhood that they're used to. Or they're going to have to consider moving outside of that neighborhood or outside of the GTA altogether. And I have clients who are considering a 50-50 shared parenting plan, living in neighborhoods like Leaside or Bloor West Village or North Toronto, you know, which neighborhoods, are yeah. like neighborhoods I'm talking about where the average home price is often in that range. And these people are, in fact, talking about selling the house, renting two houses or buying two smaller condos, or both of them pulling up roots and together moving to the suburbs or a small town an hour away or so. Um, And in in 50-50 joint parenting situations, we usually do include a clause that says they have to live within X number of kilometers of each other or of the kid's school. In In other words, like, you know, if they're living in different cities and the kids are spending two hours in the car every time there's a transition, that's not gonna work. So often they will agree, yeah, we're both gonna move to uh, Barrie or you know, somewhere that somebody might have um, some roots if their parents live out of town or something like that. So th- that's a really essential conversation to have where budgeting is concerned. What kind of housing do we think we're going to be able to afford? What's realistic? Um, is it realistic for someone to buy the other person out of the house? Maybe someone can get help from their parents and then that's less of an issue. But if not, is this even something worth talking about? Have you been to a mortgage broker? Have you talked to your bank? Is it even possible to get a mortgage to buy this person out? And sometimes it's just a non-starter because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. You know, beyond the cost of housing, there's all sorts of other costs. And maybe if you've been able to afford to send your kids to uh, a very expensive private school, for example, or summer camps, or you've been able to afford to travel, some of those expenses may no longer be affordable. And, you know, some people feel like they're entitled to be supported in the lifestyle to which they become accustomed. Right. Um, that's not exactly true. What the, the legal principle that we try to apply is that uh, the family income should be shared as fairly as possible so that nobody is you know, more disadvantaged than the other person, really. That's that's kind of the the exercise that we try to do. Um, So it's not that you're entitled to a certain lifestyle, it's that you're entitled not to be impoverished relative to your former spouse, um, particularly if the kids are going back and forth 50-50. Right, and I, I think a lot of people don't understand that even as you point out, you may be doing perfectly fine before separation, but after separation, now you've got, if you were renting, now you've got two places to rent. If you had one car that you're sharing, maybe now you need two cars. You point out a vacation. Well, if you go on a family vacation, well, maybe now both parents want to take their kids on a family vacation. So uh, the, the expenses looking at it in aggregate have gone up in a lot of cases, um, if you haven't changed your lifestyle, but your income remains the same overall. So, uh, so that's a very important point to, uh, to consider ahead of time that can I just, can I just mention one more thing about budgeting? Another, another piece is, you know, thinking about your future incomes. So often when you sit down and do a budget or give yourself a reality check about what the expenses are likely to be, that in turn could drive other decisions about, you know, what kind of work life are we going to have? So some of my clients have been uh, full-time parents for the duration of the marriage and now their kids are in middle school or maybe slightly younger, slightly older. Um, Maybe it's no longer possible for that person to be a full-time parent. You know, maybe it would have been desirable and possible if the parties had stayed married 
but given that they're separating or divorcing, maybe it's time to take a look at that person re-entering the workforce or if somebody has been mm-hmm. part, part-time or self-employed, but not really earning that much, maybe it's time to ramp it up a little bit. And sometimes that feels overwhelming, but people think about a lot of these things in the context of their previous life, you know, where maybe they were a full-time parent and their spouse wasn't doing anything to support them in the home. Um, but if you're going to go to a 50-50 shared parenting schedule, maybe by virtue of only having the kids every other week or whatever the schedule is, that frees up a lot of time to pursue your career. And for the other parent, same thing, by virtue of um, having the kids half the time, maybe it forces you to uh, work longer hours in the weeks that you don't have the kids or the days that you don't have the kids so that on the days that you do have the kids, you can be a more present parent. So everyone's making all kinds of adjustments, but often the solution to budgeting challenges is for one person to consider ramping up their work life after a period of either absence from the workforce or being uh, a part-time employee or having some sort of a home business that isn't that remunerative. And sometimes it'll take time for that person to get on track. You know, maybe there needs to be some career counseling or, uh, you know, they need to work up their confidence, take some courses, what have you. So it can't happen overnight. And I don't mean to stress anybody out by saying that, you know, people need a a long enough runway that it can happen in a way that feels comfortable as opposed to forced. Right. And I think that that sort of highlights both sides of a budget. Very often people think about budget. They think about expenses, how much I'm spending. But the other side of a budget is the income, income Mm -hmm. and expenses. So you can't just look at the outflow side. You want to look at the inflow and, okay, is there anything I can do with that? So that's a very important point. I'm glad you brought Mm -hmm. that up. Okay, so uh, in the last section uh, of the book, you talk about, you know, preparing for the talk. And maybe you can just sort of clarify what that means, because it it seems to me that a lot of what we were doing now, um, going through this was preparation for the talk. And um, one thing that stood out for me was to separate the person from the problem. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, separating the person from the problem simply means Uh, focusing on the issue that needs to be resolved as opposed to focusing on all of the other person's perceived character flaws or blaming the other person for where you're both at at the moment that you're in mediation discussing these issues. Um, So a, a personal attack is not going to be a path to resolution. If you focus on blaming somebody for, you know, in your view, not being a good enough provider um, or in your view, um, being a bad parent or an uninvolved parent or uh, treating the speaker badly. Uh, Those are things that the other person is going to disagree with. Mm -hmm. And those are things that the person will feel defensive about and will feel the need to retaliate as a result of having heard. Um, So we don't want the focus to be on attack defense. We want Mm -hmm. the focus to be on resolution. Uh, Going going back to what we said about an interest-based process, mediation is an interest-based process. And we need to focus on, you know, what are you both hoping to accomplish here? What, what do you need? How can we get from point A to point B? So the personal attacks are extremely unhelpful. And, you know, I'll tell people because a lot of people, unfortunately, do get pulled into airing past grievances over and over and over um, in the context of allegedly speaking about you know, a legal issue that we're trying to resolve. And the metaphor I love to use is to say, you know, imagine you get in your car in Toronto mm-hmm. and you're planning to drive to Windsor. So you get on the 401, you're heading west, and then each and every time you reach Cambridge, you turn the car around and drive back to Toronto. If you keep doing that, you're never gonna get to Windsor. 
And that's exactly what you're doing when you keep turning around and going back into grievances about what a person did five years ago. You know, people will talk about how unsupportive their partner was at the time the children were born. You know, the kids are now 20 years old oh. or, you know, but like, it sounds funny, but these are real issues and real um uh, grudges that people are holding on to and carrying or you know what somebody's mother said to them before they even got married and you know why did you not defend me against your mother like people hang on to these grievances and complaints for years and sometimes there are recurring themes like maybe that person who thought the other person's mother was mean to them before the marriage that mother continued to be interfering throughout the marriage mm-hmm. and you know they want to vent about that well their mother is not part of the mediation Um, Clearly, there's probably a difference of opinion on how it should have been handled. And if they couldn't resolve those issues in the 20 years leading up to the mediation, they're not going to resolve them at the mediation, right? Completely counterproductive. Yeah. So leave it in the past and air your grievances with a therapist, with a bartender, with a friend that you can trust to be discreet. Don't air them with me, the mediator, or with the other spouse. Very good advice. And uh, so I I think that kind of wraps it all up. And even after you've gone through all of this, you've gone through the talk, you make the point that this is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time deal, you know, and and I think sometimes people might think incorrectly that we're going to go through, we're going to have this talk and we're going to be able to move on, but it is very much an ongoing process. Can just touch quickly on that? That's right. It is a process. And when you sit down to have that talk with your spouse, you know, to say the words we need to separate or I want a divorce, um, it is important to really pay careful attention to that person's reaction. You know, sometimes it's something that's been discussed um, in a general kind of way for years or months. Sometimes it won't come as a surprise. And the person will say, you're right. You know, how do we get started? Other times it will come as somewhat of a shock. And even if it's not a shock, maybe that other person was still holding out hope that there could be a reconciliation. So it's gonna be a blow. So it could be a blow, it could be a shock, it could be a blow and a shock. And in that case, it is really important to give the other person space to process that news. Mm -hmm. Because if that person is in shock um, or feels that they've been delivered a massive blow, um, it's very difficult to all of a sudden shift gears and start thinking about preparing financial statements and thinking about a parenting plan and collecting income tax returns, getting a lawyer, getting a mediator, you know, it's just too much too soon. It's like, you know, if you receive the news that a loved one has just passed away, you need time to grieve. You have to go to the funeral. You have to go through that grieving process. You can't receive the news that your loved one passed away. And then in the next five minutes, make the funeral arrangements and start thinking about uh, the person's estate and administering the estate. Like it's just not on your radar. You know, you you can deal with all of those things later. Right now you need to focus on the grief and just process it and work through it. So if you feel that your spouse is reacting that way when you open up this talk, you know, provided that it's safe, provided that there's no urgency, I suggest often just giving that person space and time and not even bringing up the idea of mediation or collaborative family law or any sort of legal process, any sort of document disclosure until they've had a time to process it. And again, separating the person from the problem in that talk, as we discussed before, um, you know, if they bait you and start to blame you and say, this is all your fault, you're ruining the family, like to, to maybe anticipate that and really try not to take the bait and really try to repeat mantras like, I understand you're really angry right now. I get it. 
you know, I've had time to, to work through this and come to this decision. I understand this is new to you. I don't think you yeah. really mean yeah. what you're saying. Let me take a step away and let's continue this conversation tomorrow. So it might not be one conversation. It might be a series of conversations, but it is also really important to, to focus on the kids and you know, encourage that other person not to, to, to act in haste or in anger and say something um, irrevocable that could really be damaging to the kids. Yeah, because it is important, as you just said, you know, you've had time to think about it. You've gone through, you know, listening to podcasts and, and researching stuff online and, and you really have internalized it and you understand what is going to happen. The other person's just being hit with this. So, right. you know, they, they do need to have time. It, it does need to be something that's going to be ongoing. And, and if your ultimate goal is to come to an amicable split, then giving them that time is going to be on their side, a very, very important first step. And they're going to see that you really do value the importance of uh, making this work, this divorce work for them and their family and yourselves. So you can all come out in a better place on the other side. Yeah, it is often mutually beneficial to to wait it out and give it that time and space. Um, however, it's not always possible. It's not right, always safe. Yeah. Uh, again, if you think it's not going to be safe, probably shouldn't have the talk directly with the person in the first place. That's when you need to let your lawyer guide you through how to do that. Yeah. But assuming it's safe, assuming there's no um, absolute urgency to separate your households, mm -hmm. Um, yes, give it space. And then maybe the focus is on how can we create the most tolerable possible climate in our home while we are coexisting pending uh, initiating some sort of a legal process. Right. And there, there are things people can do. And it's harder during, uh, you know, in situations where people are working from home, mm -hmm. uh, people are around each other all the time, but there are ways to carve out uh, periods where you're not with that other person. Right. And, and, and that's why I think the first, the very first step in your book is talking about safety. So assuming things are safe, going through this entire process, giving them the time to, you know, internalize it and understand and, and do some of the work that you've done ahead of time um, really is valuable. Well, we covered a lot. All of this information is included in your ebook. We're going to have a copy of that ebook on our website. If someone wanted to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way to contact you? Okay, my website is uh, torontofamilylaw.com. Okay. And our office line is 416-861-1880. Okay. Or they can reach out to me directly by email at uh, rosannabrightman at gmail.com. Okay, and we'll definitely have links to um, that information as well on our show notes. So thank you so much, Rosanna, for joining us today. It was- uh, Thanks th so much for having me, Mark. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, and we'll see you next time on Living Richer. Information in this podcast is from sources believed to be reliable. However, we cannot represent that it is accurate or complete. It is provided as a general source of information and should not be considered personal investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell securities. Raymond James Advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. The views are those of Mark Chimpovitz, and not necessarily those of Raymond James Limited. Investors considering any investment should consult with their investment advisor to ensure that it is suitable for the investor's circumstances and risk tolerance before making any investment decision. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member of Canadian Investor Protection Fund.